Today's episode is sponsored by Politics and War, the online political strategy game where you get to create your own country and compete with thousands of other players diplomatically, militarily, and economically. Politics and War is free to play with limited microtransactions to ensure the game is fair and not pay to win. Play for free in your browser at politicsandwar.com, where you can download the Politics and War app at the App Store or in the Google Play Store, whichever one you prefer. Hey guys, let me tell you about Fable Beard Company and their Christmas products. Yes, it's the happiest time of the year again, and when it comes to scents, no one outdoes Fable Beard Company. Christmas means limited edition holiday scents, and they've already launched the first one for 2021, the Gingerbread Man. This beard oil is a wonderful blend of warm gingerbread, rich toffee, and Christmas spices. It really is one that I know you're going to enjoy. Best of all, it comes in not only beard oil, which I love, but in beard butter and in a co-wash mixture of shampoo and conditioner designed especially for your beard. Now remember, Fable also has some amazing full-spectrum CBD beard products, including one of my all-time favorites, The Baker. This comes in beard oil, butter, and even a co-wash. Each product comes with full-spectrum cannabinoids to help with hair growth and strength. Each item contains 50 milligrams of CO2-expressed full-spectrum oil. I can tell you from my experience, my beard has never been softer. This one has a scent profile of fresh-baked pastry, warm vanilla sugar, and a hint of cinnamon spice. Head over to FableBeardCompany.com right now and load up on the perfect gift for the beard man in your life. And, as always, remember to use coupon code SEAN15 for 15% off each and every order. I know you're going to love these products. Okay, let's get on to the show. The American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 9, The Sino-Japanese War, Part 2. This is Tokyo Road. Are you listening? All you fine boys in your comfortable foxhole. Welcome back to the show. We're rolling right along with season four, and this episode promises to be a doozy. I don't know about you, but I've been enjoying these episodes on Japanese and Chinese history immensely. We don't get to discuss these things too often around here, so hopefully you've found them enlightening. Now, last episode, we wrapped up our journey through Chinese history during the tumultuous years of the 1920s. We saw how Mao bounced around and then finally committed to a life as a member of the CCP and we saw how Chang took control of the country in the aftermath of the death of Sun Yat-sen. Today we'll discuss the outbreak of the Second Sino-Japanese War. Now in episode 5, we took the narrative up to 1933, so that's where we're going to begin. Now just a note, this episode contains some adult topics, and is rough to say the least. We will be discussing the behavior of the Japanese army in Nanking, and throughout Asia when it comes to women. So let me just give you a heads up. This is not an episode for the faint of heart. Having said that, I've tried my best to keep out the worst of it and to discuss these issues in a way that is respectful. I hope that I was able to achieve that goal. All right, so let's jump into our time machine 
and we got the song of the week to help us do that. This week it is China Nights by Yoshiko Yamaguchi. We'll see you in a few minutes. off with the Japanese in China, it was 1933. It's now 1937. July, to be exact. Unlike the Manchurian incident, this was not a planned provocation. The immediate cause of the outbreak of full-on war between China and Japan was something called the Marco Polo Bridge Incident. Now, at first, it was simply a sporadic, confused skirmish, but soon it turned into an actual battle in which Peking and its port city, Tianjin, fell to the Japanese. Having said that, the situation in China at the time was tense, and rumors flew that something was going to happen. Now, one of the things that I found interesting as I read about this was the idea that the cabinet at the time, known as the Kanoa cabinet, took a different approach to foreign policy compared to the previous administration. This government favored a strong foreign policy and intervention in China, views that made it popular amongst the reform faction of the army. Now, even if the government hadn't intended to launch an all-out war in China, The fact is that its actions ended up expanding a conflict that very well could have remained limited to the area where it took place. What did the government do to make matters worse? It sent three divisions to North China, a provocation that ensured matters would be worse. After this, the second Shanghai incident occurred in August, and more troops were sent there, and the intensity of the conflict further increased. Soon battles spread throughout China as the situation spiraled out of control, neither side having declared war. As historian Saburo Ayanaga notes in his book, The Pacific War, 1931-1945, to 1937 marks a new phase in a war that was already well underway. Instead of seeing the major incidents as different crises, it's more accurate to see them as part of a single conflict that stretched back to 1931. Now, while the escalation of hostilities pleased one group within the army, Not all were for this. The expansionists and the anti-expansionists fought at the center of Tokyo and even out in the field. Believe it or not, the army general staff at that point was mostly made up of anti-expansionists. 
Many of them doubted the nation had the power to win a war in China and felt it was imperative they strengthen their defenses against the Soviet Union in Manchukuo as well as develop that region. Horiba Kazao, a leading anti-expansionist general at the time, believed that no more soldiers should be sent to China. However, if the government insisted on continuing down this path, then they should mobilize 15 divisions and the nation should go on a war footing. Instead, a compromise was agreed upon. More troops, but not full mobilization. And, as the general predicted, the war got out of hand. It could neither be stopped, nor could it be won. Furthermore, Horiba's section was part of the operations division, and its chief was Ishiwara Kanji. Now, Kanji had been a leading proponent of the seizure of Manchuria, but by the late 1930s, he moved into the anti-expansionist camp. In 1939, two short years after the outbreak of war in 1937, Ishiwara told Prince Takeda, let me start that again, Ishiwara told Prince Takeda that there were two choices for Japan. First, they could give up its special political rights and form an East Asia League with China. In exchange, the plan called for Chiang Kai-shek to recognize Manchukuo. The second was to attack Peking and Nanjing, both and to force China... Let me start that sentence again, goddammit. The second was to attack Peking and Nanjing both, and force Chiang to surrender, obtain recognition of Manchukuo, then withdraw all troops from China proper, and form an East Asia League with China. Instead, he noted Japan did neither, and drifted along without a coherent policy or plans. And this, in my mind, is quite important. Sometimes when we look back, we act as if there was some great plan being followed. Instead, what is often the case is that rather than a master plan actually being followed, societies tend to stumble along into a disaster of their own making. There was, at least in my thinking, no real need for Japan to go to war against the Chinese once again. But forward momentum, so to speak, meant that rather than change course as suggested by Ishiwara, they continued down a path that was headed towards disaster. Further, and please don't make the mistake of confusing anti-expansion with being doves. We see this today in the United States a lot. Anti-expansionists are often derisively referred to here as isolationists, and they are treated as if they're doves. The reality is that in the case of the Japanese, they did not renounce the use of war. Indeed, they had war on their minds. They expected the next war was going to be against the Soviet Union and were obsessed with finding a way to use Manchukuo as a forward base against the Soviets. They wanted to restore peaceful relations with the Chinese to hold on to Manchukuo and ensure that they could handle the oncoming Soviet onslaught. The reality was that the absolute minimum objectives of the Japanese military and civilian leadership were to prevent China from falling to the communists and to keep their territory in Manchuria. There was broad consensus with these two objectives. However, by November 1937, the Imperial General Headquarters set up a Supreme War Council to improve coordination between the Army and the Navy. The purpose of this was to improve coordination and to set up and press an expanded war. Now this was a major mistake, at least as far as I'm concerned. What happened next is that in the North, all of the opposition was driven out of Peking. Then in central China, Japanese forces, after some intense fighting, broke out of Shanghai and drove forward and occupied Nanking on December 13th. It was at this point that the nationalist government, led by Chiang Kai-shek, set itself up in Chungking 
and continued to resist the Japanese. By October 1938, there were army units in South China occupying Canton, and more troops were sent to central China to seize three Wuhan cities along the Yangtze River. In other words, fighting had spread throughout China. Now, one of the realities of all of this is that while the Japanese held some major cities, that's all they held. The control of the Imperial Army extended along the railway lines from major city to major city, but the countryside was in the hands of the Chinese. In other words, they controlled points and dots on the map of China. And a glance at that map shows the Japanese had no chance to occupy the entire country. It's just too large. Thus, they tried on several occasions to negotiate a settlement with the Chang government. However, these always failed because of the demand by the Japanese that they retain control of Manchuria and station troops in China as a defense against communism. So this raises the question of why would Chang negotiate at all with the Japanese, and why would he not meet their demands? Well, first, what did he have to lose? He was at this point fighting a civil war with the communists. In order for his nationalist government to succeed, at least in the long run, he needed popular support. That support would have to also come from communists. Giving up territory that was historically Chinese would not be the way to win friends and influence people, as the saying goes. Furthermore, espousing a strong anti-communist message would alienate a large segment of the Chinese people, a group he needed on his side. As a matter of fact, by 1937, Chiang had reversed his decade-long anti-communist position and welcomed reconciliation with the communists. While he was, without a doubt, still anti-communist, Chiang made the switch as a tactical maneuver. However, as we saw with the Japanese, there wasn't really a master plan at work. Chiang was stumbling along, making it up as he went. By 1939, at the KMT's 5th National Congress, an anti-communist policy was adopted. Then, by 1941, the main objective of Chiang and his KMT was the destruction of the communists. In fact, at least according to Ayanaga again, Chiang was not willing to use his forces to fight the Japanese. His preference by this point was to make peace with Tokyo so he could destroy the communists. In his mind, the Japanese already were in Manchuria, so why not recognize that? Therefore, he repeatedly sought peace negotiations, even once war was being waged across the country. In at least one negotiating session, the Chinese delegate Sun Tzu Liang told the Japanese, quote, If peace is achieved, we are fully prepared, as fast as you can say truce, to launch a military operation against the communist bandits, end quote. This confession showed that as early as the late 30s, the KMT saw its main enemy as the communists, not the Imperial Japanese Army. So why didn't they come to terms? I think the problem was twofold. First, for the most part, the Chinese demanded the government resist the Japanese, and I'm talking about the Chinese people here. There was simply no way he could meet the demands of the Japanese to allow troops to remain in China. Secondly, and this is related to point number one, Chiang would have needed a way to save face. Perhaps the Japanese could have suspended operations in the country, maybe even withdrawn all of their forces to Manchukuo. Peace terms might have been worked out in the face of this sort of maneuver. Now, there was at least one American critic of Chiang Kai-shek in the region, and that was General Joseph Stilwell. His mission was to strengthen the Chinese forces to, uh, so they could fight against Japan and became a major critic of the nationalist regime. According to Stilwell, Chiang's government was a morally bankrupt dictatorship that stayed in power thanks to a Gestapo and party intelligence organ. Indeed, as Ayanaga notes, 
If we accept Stilwell's criticism of the Chinese government, Chiang's regime rightly belongs in the same camp as Japan and Germany, and not really with the allied nations. So this brings up an interesting question. Once the fighting in Asia broke out on a large scale in 1937, why didn't the Americans and British step in against Japan? Sure, they turned up the pressure on Japan slowly, but it wasn't really until, what, 1941 that the heat became unbearable and the Japanese lashed out against both countries. Part of the reason for this is the fact that many members of the ruling elite in the West considered Japan to be a bulwark against communism in Asia and possibly felt a certain fraternal bond with Japan. When we view this through the lens of anti-communism, it makes a certain amount of sense for the Western powers to align with Japan. Remember, we know how this all turns out, so it sounds strange to think of the British and the Americans, and even the French, as allying with Germany and Japan to crush Soviet communism. But that's only because we're looking back on it. It seems inevitable. But if you place yourself back in time to, say, 1935, who was the main enemy of the West? Stalin and the Soviet Union. But again, there's no master plan at work. Nations just stumbled along, making it up as they go. At the very least, one would, at that point, have expected the Japanese and the West to make up and fight together against communism. Today's show is sponsored by Unidragon. Everyone has faced the problem. What gift to choose? What to give yourself when you sit at home? What to give a friend or parents? What should you give your wife or husband? What to give to your children or a colleague at work? Unipuzzles by Unidragon solves this problem. Why do people love Unidragon puzzles? Each puzzle piece has its own unique shape. They're interesting for both adults and children. Each puzzle is packed in a premium wooden gift box. New puzzles are released every month, and they have an incredibly colorful design. My favorite is the Mandala Inexhaustible Abundance Puzzle. It's more than a puzzle. It's a piece of art. I've never seen anything like this. If you're looking for a gift that is memorable and you're tired of just giving out gift cards or the same old, same old, this is for you. Head over to unidragon.com right now and check out the Mandala or any of their other amazing puzzles. Use coupon code HISTORY10 and you'll get 10% off your first order. That's right, 10% off the most unique and amazing gift you've ever purchased. Just use HISTORY10 and get that great gift today. Today's show is sponsored by King of the World. This is a seven-part podcast series about a Pakistani-American Muslim teenager who comes of age post 9-11 and, 20 years later, tries to figure out what the heck happened to him and us. King of the World is a narrative, non-fiction podcast that covers topics like identity, belonging, addiction, patriotism, discrimination, racism, punk rock, history, Islam, Muslims, 9-11, spying, and so much more. I know this is going to be your new favorite podcast. Check out King of the World on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. Okay, let's get back to the show. We would spend an entire season discussing this war in China, but this isn't the Chinese history or the Japanese history podcast, so I want to focus quickly on Nanking. In 1927, Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek made Nanking the capital, once again, of China. The city was thus both political and strategic importance. After they successfully took Shanghai, the Japanese expansionists prevailed, and a plan to take Nanking was approved. On December 1, 1937, the campaign began. Now, the plan was for Japan's Central China Area Army, a force of about 150,000 troops, to take the city. 
Using a pincer maneuver, the Japanese called for the encirclement and annihilation of the city. The Shanghai Expeditionary Army advanced from the east, and the 10th Army came from the south. On the way to Nanking, little would be spared. This was modern warfare, as envisioned by the U.S. Army under Generals U.S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman in the American Civil War. Japanese veterans remember raiding tiny farm communities where they bayoneted everyone in sight. Small villages and entire cities were razed to the ground. This was total war taken to its most extreme limits. One example is the city of Suzhou, now called Suzhou. Known in the West as the Venice of China, it was famous as one of the oldest cities in China. It was also renowned for its delicate silk embroidery, palaces, and temples. On the rainy morning of November 19th, the Japanese army, wearing hoods to disguise themselves as unrecognizable from ordinary citizens, entered the city and murdered and pillaged it for days. In an act that would be repeated in Nanking, thousands of Chinese women were abducted and placed into sexual slavery. The China Weekly Review noted the population of the city dropped from 350,000 to less than 500 people. Now, one story that was kind of shocking to read about was Prince Asaka and his role in Nanking. Apparently, on December 5th, he left Tokyo by plane, and he arrived at the front lines about three days later. In an abandoned villa about 10 miles south and east of Nanking, the prince met with General Nakajima. The general noted that the Chinese in and around the city were demoralized and ready to surrender. At this point, the prince's headquarters sent out a set of orders under his personal seal and marked secret to be destroyed, which ordered the army to, quote, kill all captives, end quote. What isn't clear is whether the prince himself issued those orders or if they were simply issued in his name. What is clear is that by December 13, 1937, the Japanese 66th Battalion received orders to execute all prisoners of war. These people were to be divided into groups of 12 and then shot. As Iris Chang notes in her book, The Rape of Nanking, The Forgotten Holocaust of World War II, there was a certain logic to this command. The army did not have enough food to feed the prisoners, so killing them would eliminate the problem of feeding and caring for them. Further, it would reduce the chances of retaliation. Having said that, the execution of these orders was not an easy task. By the time the Japanese army entered the city, they found a city in which they were vastly outnumbered. Some historians estimate there were about half a million civilians, along with 90,000 Chinese soldiers, compared to about 50,000 Japanese troops in the actual city. So how to carry out these orders? Well, the answer is obvious. Deception. First, promise the Chinese fair treatment in exchange for re ending resistance. Then, divide them into groups of 100 to 200 men and take them to areas near Nanking, where they were murdered. Oddly enough, this was far easier to achieve than the Japanese had thought it would be. Resistance was sporadic, and then it collapsed. The government, under Chang, abandoned the city. When they had, at first, attempted to flee the city, many Chinese troops had thrown down their weapons. They now hoped for better treatment from the Japanese in exchange for surrender. In other words, they took the bait. One Japanese soldier kept a diary, and this shed some light on the situation. According to Azuma Shiro, approximately 20,000 Chinese troops surrendered outright. He was stunned. Remember, the Japanese at this point were a highly militant culture, and the idea that the Chinese would not fight an enemy to the death 
was incomprehensible. His contempt for the Chinese deepened when he discovered they far outnumbered their Japanese captors. Azuma expresses sorrow for the Chinese soldiers who were begging for water and assurances they would not be killed. However, he was also disgusted by their cowardice, and he himself was ashamed that he had secretly been afraid of the Chinese. Quote, they hardly look like the enemy who only yesterday was shooting at and troubling us. It was impossible to believe that they were the enemy soldiers. It felt quite foolish to think we had been fighting to the death against these ignorant slaves, and some of them were even 12 or 13-year-old boys, end quote. Once the soldiers surrendered, there was no one to protect the city. At that point, the Japanese army poured into it. As they conducted house-to-house searches, the Japanese killed the citizens. Corpses piled up outside of the city walls and along the river, which was literally red with the blood of their victims. Japanese reporters who followed the troops to Nanking were shocked at the behavior of their army. One reporter, horrified at what he saw, witnessed the Japanese line up Chinese prisoners on top of the wall and charge at them with bayonets. Quote, I stood there at a total loss and did not know what to do, end quote. He was not alone in this sentiment. Many other reporters recoiled at the orgy of violence, and their disbelief found its way into print. Quote, about 50 to 100 people were toiling there, dragging bodies from the mountain of corpses and throwing them into the Yangtze River. The bodies dripped blood, some of them still alive and moaning weakly, their limbs twitching. On the pier was a field of glistening mud under the moon's dim light. Wow, that's all blood. End quote. Women suffered most, according to one soldier from the 114th Division of the Japanese Army. Quote, no matter how young or old, they all could not escape the fate of being raped. We sent out coal trucks from Siakwan to the city streets and villages to seize a lot of women. And then each of them was allocated to 15 to 20 soldiers for sexual intercourse and abuse, end quote. Rape was supposedly outlawed by the army, but it was so deeply embedded in the Japanese military culture that no one took the rule seriously. Many believed that raping virgins would make one more powerful in battle. And the fact this was outlawed actually encouraged Japanese soldiers to then kill their victims afterwards. That way there were no witnesses. The legacy, or perhaps the worst legacy of Nanking, is the comfort women. Western nationals who saw this led the cry of outrage against what the Japanese were doing in China. The reaction from the Japanese government to this was bizarre to say the least. Instead of punishing the soldiers responsible for this, the high command made plans to create a giant underground system of military prostitution. It drew into its web anywhere from 100,000 to 200,000 women from across Asia, including China, Korea, Taiwan, the Philippines, and Indonesia. Quote, the Japanese Expeditionary Force in central China issued an order to set up comfort houses during this period of time because Japan was afraid of criticism from China, the United States of America, and Europe, following the cases of massive rapes being between battles in Shanghai and Nanking, end quote. In other words, the Japanese believed that by setting up a network of comfort houses, they could reduce the incidence of rape visited upon local women, and thus reduce international criticism. The first official comfort house opened in Nanking in 1938. However, to label these places as comfort houses is ludicrous at best. These were not high-class brothels, 
and the women were obviously not there of their own volition. Calling them comfort houses might conjure up images of beautiful geisha girls and whatnot, but nothing could be further from the truth. Again, according to Iris Chang, untold numbers of women, upon hearing of their fate, committed suicide. Others died from disease or murder. Those who were able to live through this nightmare faced a lifetime of shame, sterility, and ruined health. And one last important point. By 1939, the tide turned against Japan and China, at least so far as was apparent, the Chinese would not be easily defeated. The first period of the war, lasting until October 1938, saw the Chinese prove the folly of the Japanese boast that Shanghai would fall in three days, and China in three months. The Chinese used delaying tactics and a scorched-earth policy, sabotaging dams and levees to make life as difficult as possible for their Japanese enemy. The second phase, lasting until December 1941, saw the Chinese attempt to engage in a war of attrition to wear down and exhaust the enemy. Again, although the Japanese officially occupied much of the north and the coast, the reality was they were really only in control of the cities and the railroads. The Chinese themselves remained in control of the countryside. Now, Finally, I'd like to mention Wang Jingwei one last time. We spoke about him in the last episode and his rivalry with Chang for leadership of the KMT. As the Japanese had more trouble controlling their conquered areas, one of their tactics was to use puppet governments to do their work for them. In 1937, he accepted an invite from the Japanese to form the, quote, reorganized National Government of the Republic of China, end quote. That was the official name of the puppet state in China. He was in charge, so to speak, until his death in 1944. There is a little bit of disagreement about this, but for the most part, he is seen as a traitor. Okay, so on this note, it's time to wrap this episode up. Up next, we will finally get into the American side of the story and look at the road to war. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. It truly helps others find the show. You can also share it on social media. If you would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash American History. For $10 a month, you'll have access to two other bonus shows. I'm your host, Sean, and you've been listening to Episode 9 of Season 4, The War in the Pacific. We'll see you next time. Shut it off for our rent. Oh, please, wait a minute. Wait a minute.